Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, during Lent this year, um, we have been talking uh, about the Christian disciplines. Uh, these are the habits and the practices of the Christian life that put us into the places where we uh, ordinarily receive grace from God. And when we practice the Christian disciplines as uh, individuals or when we practice them together as a church, they lead us into maturity and strength and wisdom as people. So we've talked about life together and prayer and solitude and giving, and this morning we're going to talk about meditating on Scripture. So let me read from Psalm 119 for us. Uh, You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. So, Father, we just sang uh, together (laughs) that your incarnate word um, would come and be here with us, that his word would find success with us. And so we ask, Father, that these beautiful words that we have sung, that we would experience them as truth, that we would know that they are true as we talk about this word that we've read and heard together. Show us the grace of Jesus. Show us what our elder brother Jesus has done for us and change us by this word. Father, meet us in all of the places where we find ourselves this morning. Those of us who uh, feel close to you and who are ready to hear from you. Those of us who feel far away from you because we have been running away or because it seems that you have been distant from us. Meet those of us who are in faith and outside of faith. Meet every one of us and show us this word and change us by it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, a kid, an older kid, uh, I used to love to go to uh, my buddy Dave's house for Halloween. And it wasn't because his neighborhood was a better uh, candy neighborhood or anything like that. It was because when we spent Halloween at my buddy Dave's house, um, we would mess with all of the trick-or-treaters that came to his house. Um, We did that a bunch of different ways, but one of our favorites, um, one of our go-tos was a classic. One of us would just stand on his porch with a sheet draped over us. Um, Not Charlie Brown style with a bunch of holes cut into it, but just a solid sheet. One of us would have that sheet over us, And we would stand on his porch stock still um, like we were a Halloween decoration. And that was the point. The point was to look like we were a decoration and not like a person under a sheet. 
The point was to not look like we were really there and alive. So as you can imagine, it would not take much at all um, when the neighborhood kids would amble up onto his uh, front porch for the loot. Uh, all it took was just a quick turn of the head, uh, a little drop of the arm, or if we you know, really wanted to inflict maximum terror, we would move towards those little kids and maybe give out a ghostly wail. Um, I got to tell you, <laughs> people came out of their skin <laughs> when that stuff happened. They went completely bonkers. And uh, it never, ever, ever got old. <laughs> we did it all the time. That uh, frozen split second between, oh, this thing looks interesting, and, oh, this thing is alive, <laughs> is a thing of beauty. <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. One of the saddest parts, uh, I think, about being a grown-up is that it somehow no longer feels appropriate to afflict that kind of terror <laughs> on uh, children that aren't my blood relatives. But I do have three, and so I press on. And I think uh, that that is a pretty vivid picture of the way that the psalm writer, and for that matter, all of the writers of the Bible talk about God's word. Here's what Psalm 119 is. We just read a little part of it, but here's what Psalm 119 is. It is a long, sustained meditation on the wonder of that frozen split second between, oh, this is interesting, and oh, wow, this thing is alive. That's what Psalm 119 is. It is a meditation on that wonder in that moment. Because that's what the biblical writers think about God's Word. It's not just ink. It's not just paper forming words and sentences on a page, as interesting as that might be. No, it is more than that. It is alive and it's coursing with life and energy and power. And it's actually getting things done in this world. It's doing things to me and it's doing things to you and it's doing things to all of us together. Sometimes, this word brings to us a little bit of fear, like me and my buddies on Halloween night. Sometimes it brings to us bracing comfort. Other times it brings love or light or strength or life. Sometimes it brings stability. Sometimes it brings a gentle push out into something else. Sometimes it brings wisdom. Sometimes... It makes us free and it liberates us. There is no part of our lives, church, there is no part of our lives that God's word cannot and will not touch. And wherever it touches our life, it leaves beauty and delight. God's word is indispensable for our flourishing. And it is, you know, as we like to say around here all the time, given for our good. I mean, one of the very first things that we learn about God in Scripture, one of the very first lines of Scripture we find that the word that God says actually forms and sustains reality. Right? One of the earliest things we hear from God is he says, let there be light. And what happens? There is light. God's word doesn't just describe things. His word doesn't just refer to things. It actually does things. It creates things. It is not a metaphor. It is a muscular reality. It makes things happen. It is alive. 
Now, I know it's possible to hear this way of thinking about God's Word and to think that it sounds like a person, right? Roving around out here doing all of these things in us and around us. And if you hear that and you think it sounds like a person, then trust me, you're headed in the right direction. You're on to something. And we'll come back to that later. But for now, what's important for us to understand this part of the psalm is to know that it presupposes this kind of muscular, full-blooded, living view of God's Word. And our part of the psalm starts with a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, when you hear that, how can he keep his way pure? you got to know that that is journey language. That's, that's road language. In the next verse, he asks God to keep him from wandering off away from the right way. And church, i got to tell you, this is really important. <laughs> In Scripture, living human life is not described as a series of tests. Living human life is not described as some big cosmic checklist that we're making our way through. Human life in Scripture is never described in discrete stages, like now you're a kid, and now you're a student, and now you're in your career, and now you're retired. In Scripture, human life and the living of human life is never described like it's some hill or mountain you have to climb to get to the top of. No. In Scripture, the dominant, dominant metaphor for living human life is walking. Walking. It's so dominant. It is so powerful. It is so overtaking that when Jesus invites people into discipleship, when he invites them to walk deeper into discipleship, he only has to use two words, follow me. So why is this important? Well, it's important because when it comes to me and you living everyday life as followers of Jesus, then the questions that we ought to ask about our lives are really simple. We can take a page out of the psalm writer's book. Am I walking in the right direction? You know, where am I headed? Who am I? And who am I becoming? Those are the kind of questions that we need to ask. I could put an even finer point on it, right? You could ask yourself, was I insensitive to that person the other day when I did whatever I did, right? And that's a really good question. That's a helpful question. That's the kind of question I should ask. And if I ask it, and if I spend time thinking about the answer to it, I'll get at some stuff. But you know what would be more helpful to ask? Am I basically an insensitive jerk to everybody all the time? I could ask myself, why didn't I bring soup to my neighbor when I knew that she was sick? And I should ask that question. It's helpful. It would maybe get at some stuff about that day and where I was on that day and what I was thinking about. But a better question might be, do I care about the people who live on my block as much as I care about myself? That's what the psalm writer is talking about. That's what he's getting at. He's asking, how can I know that I am on the right road? How can I know that I am walking in the right direction? How can I know who I am and who I am becoming based on the way that I'm walking? And when I'm there and when I'm on that road and I'm sure about it, how can I keep from wandering away from it? It is a beautiful, beautiful question. Another way to put it might be, how do I close this gap down 
between believing something like up in my head and, and then actually having it affect the way that I live in flesh and blood in everyday life? How can I close the gap down between those two things? I know, right, that I'm not supposed to be a jerk. <laughs> I know that I'm supposed to love my neighbor like I love myself. But here's the understatement of the morning. Knowing is definitely not the same thing as doing. So how do we close down that gap? How do we close down the gap between belief and character? Between knowing something is true in our heads and then actually having that mean something in the way that we walk out our lives. Well, here's the good news, church. The psalm writer gives us the answer to that question, and there are no magic words to learn. There isn't some kind of secret knowledge that we have to seek out. There are not five steps to success or eight principles for better living that we have to tackle in our bathroom mirror. There's none of that stuff. It is really simple. He says we guard our way according to God's word. We store it up. That's what he says in our hearts. In the last two verses of the psalm, he makes it super clear. In the last two verses of that part that we read in 15 and 16, he says, I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your words. I will meditate on your precepts. This is what the psalm writer is saying. One of the ways that we can make sure that we're on the right road and when we're there, not wander off of it. One of the ways that we can close down the gap between our belief and our character, between knowing and doing, is by the discipline of meditating on God's word. Because it is alive. And it does things to us. So I know some people hear that word meditation and, you know, they don't have any idea what it means. That may be some of us here this morning. Others of us here this morning might hear that word meditation and think it sounds a little weird or odd. Others of us may hear that word meditation and assume that it's about being super spiritual. It requires some kind of advanced Christianity or spirituality that, you know, I don't have access to. So let me spend just a couple of minutes talking about what it is and what it isn't and how normal people like you and me can do it. Let me start by saying what it isn't. Meditating on Scripture is not the same thing as studying it. Study is incredibly, incredibly important. It is also a Christian discipline, not one that we've talked about in the season of Lent, But study is also a Christian discipline. It's absolutely critical for the health of the church, for the health of her people. Study is really important. It's organically connected to meditation. But it is not the same thing. When we meditate on Scripture, we're not outlining it. We're not thinking about the larger context of it. We're not thinking about the historical backdrop of it. We're not exploring this lexical meaning of this word or that word. That's not what's happening when we meditate. I can give you an example. A couple of minutes ago at the beginning of the sermon, I said that the dominant metaphor for living human life in Scripture is walking. I want you to know I didn't didn't say that because I thought it sounded good. (laughs) I didn't pull that out of thin air. I learned that by studying it. 
And it is really important to know things like that. I love to study. Maybe you do too. But it is one thing to know that. It is one thing to know that the psalm writer pictures living human life as a road that I may be tempted to wander off of. It is another thing altogether, church, and a deeply, deeply needful thing for me, for Aaron, (laughs) to think about how I wander off from following Jesus in everyday life. To set aside time to think about the actual details of how I actually do that. How do I wander away from being a good husband to Allison? Am I wandering away from being a good dad to my daughters? Am I wandering away from being a good pastor to all of you? To think about those and to let them go deeper and to ask myself, is there something that ties all of this wandering together? Is there something that's there that I cannot see that I need to see? Is there something there that I need to let go of and repent of? Is there something that I need to take in, some new way of living and being? And if so, what is it? In church, I hope it's obvious. (laughs) I do not get the answers to those questions by doing some historical cultural study. (laughs) I'm not going to get the answers to those questions by doing some lexical, grammatical study. I get answers to those questions listening to God (laughs) as I meditate on his word. I get the answers to those questions by setting aside time not just to read scripture or even to study it, but to turn it over in my mind again and again and to ponder it and to savor it and to ruminate on it and to taste it, to listen in it for God's voice. I get the answers to those really, really needful questions by letting the Word do what it does to search me, to be a map for me, to shed light on dark places, to let me know there's forgiveness and hope. That's what meditation is. So if you need a definition, here's a definition. This is what meditation is. It's setting aside time to think through the connections between Scripture and my life and listening for what God might want to tell me in the process. Setting aside time to think through the connections between Scripture and my life and listening for what God might want to say to me in the process. And church, believe this. (laughs) Nobody has to be a spiritual giant to do this. You just have to do it. That's it. So let me just suggest one way to do it. And I'll tell you right at the beginning, there is no one right way to do this. And throughout church history, lots of people have done it lots of different ways. I don't want to get hung up on it, but I do want to give you one way to do it. And I'm going to give you this way because it's it's short and simple. (laughs) Martin Luther wrote this method down for his barber of all people. You don't need to write it down unless you really, really want to because it's already written down. It's on a half sheet of paper in the back on the welcome table. And if you want, you can take it on the way out. But this is what Martin Luther told his barber to do. He said, first, slowly read a passage out loud. 
You know, it could be a larger passage like the one we read this morning or even just a few verses or maybe a sentence or two. Read it out loud. That's important. Read it out loud so that you can really hear it and begin to turn it over. Begin to inwardly digest it, as the old Book of Common Prayer says. Read out loud a bunch of times and then prayerfully ask these three questions. First, what should I praise God for because of these words? Second, what should I repent of? What should I let go of? What new obedience or new thing should I bring in because of these words? And then third, what should I ask God for because of these words? Three questions. In my experience, these three questions usually lead seamlessly into prayer. It's another of the disciplines that we talked about a couple weeks ago. There is nothing complicated about this. That's what meditation is. It is setting aside time to think through the connections between Scripture and my life and listening for what God might want to say to me in the process. Church is simple, and doing it puts us into these amazing, incredible places. When, when people like us take the time to do this, we put ourselves in the way of grace. We, we put ourselves in one of those places where God has said, this is where I meet you. And if you do this, you know this already. <laughs> you know that this is true. You hear God in these moments. Church, it is true. You hear God in these moments, and it is intimate. And it's holy. <laughs> and sometimes it's scary. <laughs> It freaks you out how alive God's word becomes, how it can speak to these deeply mundane parts of your life, how it can shine light into these parts of your life that are so deeply hidden you didn't even know they mattered. And now here they are. You change because this thing is alive. It's not complicated. But that does not mean that it's easy and if you have tried, you know that it isn't easy. Like prayer, like all of the other disciplines that we've talked about, it is often difficult because there is nothing in our world, and I mean nothing in our world, that makes this easy to do. There is nothing in our world that encourages anyone to do anything like this. We are awash with distraction. We are awash with competing voices. People like us find it hard to do 15 minutes of anything. Anything without distraction. So the question is, what is going to cut through that? A few uh, years ago, one of my friends who is a pastor, and he's also a musician, he recommended an album to me. And I knew that he really wanted me to buy this album, and I knew that he really wanted me to listen to it because of what he said. He did not <laughs> describe the music on the album, he did not describe the lyrics. He didn't talk about the band. He didn't tell me what other bands this band sounded like. I knew he wanted me to hear it because he said one thing about it. This is what he said. <laughs> it makes me feel like a teenager again. I love it that much. <laughs> so I don't know <clears throat> how your teen years were. I can't speak from your teen year experience or 
the ones that you had or the ones that you're in right now. I can only speak from my perspective. And I can tell you that my teen years were filled with, filled with what many people might call wasted time <laughs> listening to great music and just dreaming about it. <laughs> I spent a lot of time doing that as a teen. If you don't believe me, you can ask my parents. They're sitting right over there. <laughs> they will affirm it. And the rare rock album that can make me feel like a teenager again, like the whole world is open in front of me, all of the possibilities in this world could be mine, I will take all of that you got. <laughs> I would do lots to get that album. And I bought this guy, the album that he recommended, and I loved it. And the psalmist is saying something very much like that about the power that God's word has in his life. Here's what he says in verse 15. He says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as all riches. I don't think that that's an overstatement. I do not think that's a hyperbole. I think that the word had become so dear to him that it mattered more to him than riches. If he had riches, he would have given them up. I believe it's true. He would have given them up if he had to just to get at God's word. Why? Because it was the place where he met God. It was the place where he walked with God. It was the place where he heard from God. And he had decided. He had decided. That's what I love. That's what I want. That's what I desire. That's what my friend did to me. <laughs> he targeted my desire. <laughs> he targeted my love. And that's what the psalm writer is doing. So I'm saying, yeah, meditating on Scripture is difficult, but the invitation to do it, church, the invitation to do it is tied up with a promise for our good and our flourishing and our delight. That is the thing that will cut through any distraction. We have to get to the place where we say, that is what I want. That is what I need. That is what I love. We need to order our desire in that direction. The old Puritan divine John Owen wrote like this about meditating on Scripture. This is what he said. When we do it, meditating on Scripture, we experience that God is gracious and that the love of Christ is better than wine. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> who doesn't want to know that deep in who we are, that we are loved with a love that is better than the best? That's what I want. That's what I want for all of us. And it is about moving our desire in that direction. And that Owen quote leads me back to this surprisingly red-blooded view of God's Word that we talked about earlier, where it sounds like the Psalms and the prophets, for that matter, are talking about the Word of God like it's a person going out and doing all of these things for our good and always succeeding and doing things for our flourishing. Well, there's a reason that the Psalm writers, there's a reason that the prophets talk like that. It was because they were straining with a language that wasn't fully complete. They were working with language that was too thin and they were stretching it as far as they could. All of that language was pointing in one direction and it was this direction that they could only see with the eye of faith, but we have seen it fully and completely. We heard about it again in the gospel lesson. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory. Jesus is, as the author of Hebrews says, the final word that God has spoken to us. And the words of the Psalms and the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles, they all bear witness to that final beautiful word who is Jesus, whose love is better than the best love we know. And church, (laughs) he still speaks. And he still acts for our good. He still offers the forgiveness and the atonement that he won at his cross. He still applies the victory and the healing and the hope that his resurrection secured for people like us. And one of the places where he meets us to do that is when we meditate on the word that bears witness to him. So let's practice the Christian discipline of meditating on scripture because it has been given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, keep this out in front of us. Thank you that we're not in the same spot that the psalm writer was. Thank you that we can see that you have spoken finally and completely and beautifully to us in your Son all of your good intentions for us. All of your good intentions for the world have been spoken in the most beautiful language through your Son. And so we ask, Father, that you would make us a people who order our desires towards him, (laughs) who move towards him and say, this is the thing that I want, this is the thing that I love, this is the thing that I need, and make us people who are happy to set aside time to think about the word that bears witness to him every day. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in the name of that final beautiful word, Jesus. Amen.